The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome everyone. Hope you're having a great day. And here we are, still this year, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Remember, it isn't a day. It's this year we're celebrating. And looking at the next 25 years. A uh, special shout-out to my close friend, Yoshiko Dart. I uh, hope you're having a great day, Yoshiko. And I'm going to get moving on with our first guest, who for the first few minutes of the show has some special issues to talk about. I'll, I also have to give a special shout-out to uh, Terry. Uh, Terry Hartman Squire. Let me tell you what, this woman is awesome and helped make all this possible. Terry, you are the best. So, with that, we have Ted Jackson with us today from the California Foundation for Independent Living. And, uh, Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. It's kind of a, kind of a holiday for us, for those who care about elections, because today's National Voter Registration Day, so we're very excited. And you know what, like, that is so important. I know Terry sent me a note reminding me what Justin Dart said about vote as if your life depends upon it, because it does. Hey, folks, wake-up call here. We won't get anyone to listen to us unless we're voting. That's why I always tell people when they complain, I'll say, did you register to vote? Did you vote? Then you, don't, you can't say anything then. So, Ted, take it away. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that we're um, preparing for this, this week, actually, is we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the ADA uh, here in California with our California hashtag ADA25 conference. Um, it's being put on by the Disability Organizing Network, which is one of our programs here at CFILC, and it's going to be this Friday and Saturday in San Francisco. Tony Coelho is going to come out for it. Folks are coming from as far away as Canada, Washington, D.C., New York, and one of the focuses, though, is going to be about voter registration and activating um, the disabled electorate across the country. And in fact, we are going to have our own Secretary of State as one of the keynote speakers in the morning. So we're making that connection and tying that celebratory energy of the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act and really trying to harness it and carry it into next year and become activated for next year. You know, um, we, as citizens of the United States, the act of voting is probably the most basic way that we can exercise our rights and become decision makers. And the quest for equal access to an independent and private vote has produced a lot of groundbreaking assistive technology, standards. Systems are in place. Not everything is completely accessible, but it's certainly a lot more accessible than it was years ago. And so with all of these advances, we think now the time is to kind of shift modes a little bit 
and really think about GOTV. Now that we've built it, um, we really got to push people to get out to it and to get out and, and to vote. And we've also learned a lot of lessons from look, looking at other communities. Here in California, um, almost every legislative session, we have to fight to protect in-home supportive services. And, you know, there are folks out there and there are some of them are community partners who want to make changes to, that, to the policies around IHSS that aren't necessarily driven by people with disabilities. And they're able to easily do it because they're able to mobilize large mass groups of voters during elections and politicians respond to them. Now, we know that there are 37 million eligible voters across the country. And so it's really important that we get those 37 million eligible voters with disabilities to get out and vote. In the 2012 election, 15 million of them voted. That's that's about 40% of our community that could vote that actually did. If we could turn that into 50, 55, 60, 65% like other communities, then there will be a wake-up call with politicians. And then they'll start paying attention because what do they want? They want to get reelected. So that's okay. a big well, call to I'm action sorry. for us. I'm sorry. What was the number that voted in 2012? About 15 million of uh, of the 37 million eligible voters. Yeah. What power? Yeah. If we increase that, what power? Right. You know, my, um, I am a person with disability, and I am, you know, an advocate in the disability world, but I actually started my political life working in the LGBTQ movement and for marriage equality, and I saw us go from a place of no power as gay people to a place of, of a lot of power that we see now today, and all of that is a direct connection to the way the gay community um, really pushed people out to vote and made elections an important part of their community and demonstrated to politicians that we have power at the ballot box. And I want to see that. I have that same vision for the disability community. And so some of the things that we're, we've been doing and that we're going to be doing uh, center around training. I was part of a group of folks that uh, trained, um, did a GOTV training at the National Council on Independent Living Conference in July, specifically designed for centers for independent living so that, that a GOTV campaign can kind of live in their environment and they can continue their everyday operations as well. We're now continuing that effort um, at the April conference, which is the Association for Programs in Rural Independent Living. It's going to be in um, October 16th in Virginia Beach, which is exciting. And Michelle Bishop from um, the National, uh, from NDRN um, is going to be joining me. And um, Michelle and I are going to be doing a full day-long training to train disability organizers and how to do get-out-the-vote work. And then we're already starting to have talks about what we're going to start doing in the winter and to develop more trainings because we really just have to get our community trained because um, we know the passion is out there. I mean, anyone who's been around um, in the ADA celebrations this year knows that that the, the wake-up call has happened. The passion is there. We, we, know, we know that we want to build more political power. And the key to political power is organizing votes. Well, Ted, I so agree with you. I mean, this is for us, the disability community. Oh, my goodness. We have such power if we would just register to vote and vote. And it's so important to me that, Ted, I'll be having you come back on in January to tell us where we are. Great. Thank you very much for the opportunity. 
Oh, thank, and thank you for what you're doing, Ted. Thank you for what you're doing to help everyone. Uh, I'm a woman living with epilepsy, but I, and I so believe in the power of our community working together. Um, so thank you for what you're doing, and we'll look forward to talking to you again. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that is so important. It is so important. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of issues that we are fighting for right now, and I'm so excited about our guest today. Um, I just I read what he had written, and I thought, wow, this guy is awesome. And he is the author of a new book, Miracle Boy Grows Up, How the Disability Rights Revolution Saved My Sanity. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is a absolutely must-read uh, book. So anyway, welcome to the show, Ben Matlin. Thank you. My pleasure. Boy, Ted well, is a hard act to follow. I, a, a true advocate. I, I'll, I'll second everything he said. Yes, and how important it is. Isn't that the truth? Um, And and just as I said, Ben, I was so impressed with some of your uh, articles. You're just such a good writer, but so right on target that I wanted to reach out and see if you would be kind enough to be a guest on our show. Um, And how about if we begin by telling our listeners uh, a little bit about your experience living with a disability as a young child when your family was told that you were going to have a short Life expectancy. Mm. Yes. Um, well, I was uh, born uh, 1962 uh, on Thanksgiving Day, as a matter of fact, and uh, uh, everything was, uh, you know, it was great. It was fine. But I was about six months old. My parent, my mother, I guess, give credit where it's due. My mother noticed that I wasn't um, sitting myself up the way my older brother had when he was six months old. And if they, if they put me down in a sitting position, I tended to fall over. I, I couldn't stabilize myself. So I was uh, taken around to all kinds of doctors, and there were all sorts of diagnoses. Nobody really knew what was going on, except that I was what they call a floppy baby. And that's still a scientific term. Floppy baby syndrome. I, I fell over. I was floppy. Um, so uh, I was, oh, maybe five years later, diagnosed with something called spinal muscular atrophy, which is um, actually more common than, than we even knew at the time. Uh, it's now estimated that something like one in every 40 people is a carrier for this condition, but uh, you have to have two carriers, have a baby, then there's a, I guess, a 50-50 shot of the child having the disability. Anyway, so it's, it's uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's rare, but not as rare as we once thought. And in um, about half the cases, uh, babies who were diagnosed in infancy don't make it past the second year. Uh, mm-hmm. After getting better, medical technology is better, but in those days, there was no telling how long I'd live. Um, so, uh, 
you know, and, and my parents didn't know what to do. There wasn't, it wasn't really a, a disability rights movement. Well, it was starting off in pockets, but it wasn't well known. There wasn't much advocacy. There weren't support groups. Um, when I was about six, um, my muscle weakness kind of stabilized or slowed down dramatically. So uh, the, uh, the life expectancy was not quite as dire, I guess. But I'm still, you know, as a, I still am. Here I am at the age of 52, and I could catch a bad cold and not be able to cough and clear my lungs and get pneumonia, and uh, that could be it. So uh, yeah, I've lived all these years with this, this um, uh, sense of vulnerability, I guess, which I didn't acknowledge when I was young. You know, I thought it was Superman or something, just because I had a, a rich fantasy life. But, uh, and, uh, you know, now that I'm a, more uh, mature and self-aware, or I try to be, uh, I, yeah, I realize it's, uh, that was kind of amazing. I've lived uh, to this age and this stage. I've never walked. I've never stood. Uh, I used to be able to feed myself. I can't do that anymore. My, my hands are, are very weak. But that hasn't, uh, you know, that's not my whole life. That's just one aspect of it. I think I'm talking too much. No, you're not. <laughs> no, okay. you're not. I think that you uh, explained that very well because this just fits into everything that I'm going to talk about. Now, obviously, you went through elementary uh, school, middle school, high school, uh, tell me, what, what were some of your biggest obstacles? Well, um, I grew up in New York, and my parents were educated uh, middle-class people. And even in those days, they really didn't want their kids going to public school in New York. It was, a, I guess, a bad situation. Even then, in private schools, weren't quite as expensive in those days as they are now. But none of the private schools would take me. Like the only schools that would were the segregated special ed schools. It wasn't like today where, where uh, as much as possible, kids with disabilities are integrated with, with regular classes. Uh, you know, in those days, it was all separate. Um, my parents knew that separate was not equal. So they fought to get me into regular school, private schools, but uh, they had to we had to move across town to be near a school that was uh, willing to take me. Um, not sure I knew any of that at the time. I was, I was too young. Um, my first grade teacher uh, was working on her dissertation on this new concept of, that they call the mainstreaming handicapped kids. And so I have her dissertation to tell me about the things she did to make me, uh, well, to, to, to make it easier for me in that classroom. For instance, early on, the class, I guess, sat in a circle and she had kids come up and just touch my wheelchair just to be less afraid of it. Um, who, who wanted to do that? No, the, the, the teacher. 
Oh, the teacher told up. them that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I used to come up and just to kind of make you know, a little contact and not be so afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one child who was rather threatened me, who, who was going to push my chair down the stairs. Uh, this was in, I forget, fifth grade, maybe, fourth grade. And, I, you know, I, I had, my heroes were, you know, Captain Kirk and the, the Chief Ironside and the, you know, the old the police show. And so I tried to be a, a tough guy. And I, I remember, I, I was in, in my memory, and maybe not remembering accurately, but I, I, I think I kind of <clears throat> didn't show him I was scared. I didn't want to be bullied. And I said, you're not going to push me down the stairs because you're getting in big trouble. I can't stop you if you want to do it. But but uh, you're just trying to scare me because that's it's stupid to do that. And eventually, he, you know, gave up, walked away, and someone came along and uh, rescued me, got me to my next my next class. But uh, so there were moments, you know, there were there were uh, uh, occasional dangers. Um, but I was trying to have a have, have a, a, a circle of of, of friends, a, a club as we used to call it, and I was sort of a in charge of it, I guess. <laughs> I was bossy, and uh, and there were the people who were I, I, I think you're best at pushing my wheelchair because I, I really couldn't move myself in those days. I did not have a electric powered right. wheelchair. That I do now, but um, and we had competitions. Who would be the the, the chief wheeler? <laughs> and my favorite person, the the person the wheelchair. That kind of stuff. We made uh, fun games, I guess, around the wheelchair. Um, I was exempt from PE a lot, so that was kind of fun. I had three periods. Um, my high school, a separate building, there was a, a very old elevator that my wheelchair really couldn't fit in. We had to remove the footrests and go into a certain angle and oh. that would work. Uh, so there were these, you know, things, uh, things happened. But um, college was probably worse. Uh, it was, I started college in 1980 which was the first year uh, universities and colleges were required to be accessible. So I was kind of a guinea pig, I guess. Uh, and I, well, I got into Harvard, which was great, but Harvard's a very old campus. In fact, it's the oldest campus in the U.S. And if you've ever been to Cambridge, Massachusetts, a lot of the streets are in brick. Brick is very bumpy on a mm-hmm. wheelchair. The winters are very cold. I had a lot of uh, problems getting around campus. They had an accessible van. They had one when I started. They had three when I graduated. So that helped get me around. <clears throat> but there was also a, uh, a housing problem. Wow. I would say it was kind of new... A new concept 
And the hey, wait a minute! I have a question. How did you get to class? At that point, I had a, a power chair, and I would take the van across campus, and I would just try to get there myself. No, no, no! I mean, in the buildings, weren't a lot of those buildings ah, difficult yes. with access? Quite right, quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to register in advance, and classes had to be that's what I wanted were moved to accessible locations. Well, you, you know what? What a pain that is. That's very. Really, that's a pain. It was Thank God this has changed, huh? Yeah, well, I hope it Hey, you know what, Ben? <laughs> I, let me just interrupt you one minute because I Please. think we have a caller that's been patiently waiting on the line. Greg, are you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Greg, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Joyce? I'm good. I'm good. You have a question yeah, for our guest? You have a question? Uh, yeah, it wasn't specifically for the guest. Um, although, I, you know, I listened to... Um, your guest's experience is, um, it, you know, it's very enlightening. Um, and and I, I would, you know, I am curious to hear more about uh, your guest's story. You know, what, what did you study at Harvard? Huh. Well, I, uh, I majored in something called social studies, which is an interdisciplinary uh, honors concentration. So with some government, some philosophy, uh, some psychology. I thought I might go to law school, but I, I never even applied yeah. to law school. <laughs> I just thought I should. Gotcha. Okay, well, it's, it's funny you say that. Uh, I actually went to Georgetown for my undergrad, and, and I did uh, also a liberal arts uh, studies uh, major in government, and I actually ended up going to law school. <laughs> and uh, now I'm kind of trying to figure out what to, to do with that. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe which you would get to in your story if, if you continued, and, and uh, I'm happy to listen to. Um, I'm curious as to kind of where your your uh, your life's taking you now. Like, what, what is your career path? Because that's kind of where I'm at in my position right now. Um, and I, I was calling uh, because I've had a, a great deal of difficulty in, uh, in, in, in figuring out what I'm going to do here as far as my career goes. Um, so, you know, I, I've worked with several um, diversity coordinators at, at local companies and such, uh, and I, I just kind of found that, uh, you know, there's a lot of positions and, and uh, efforts being put into um, helping people with disabilities find employment, uh, but, but uh, though I think it's all well-intentioned, uh, I think it, it often the efforts... Uh, fall, fall short. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know myself personally, I consider myself, you know, very, uh, you know, capable person. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a lot of credentials, you know, the Georgetown degree, the law degree, the legal license, all these things. I have several good experiences um, as far as, like, volunteer opportunities and, and uh, opportunities internships I did for grants, uh, but, but I'm, I'm just feeling I'm being kind of almost like stonewalled in some ways um, whenever I'm looking for employment. So, you know, maybe, you know, you having gone to Harvard, uh, which is obviously a very reputable school, uh, you could speak to, um, you know, what has what your experience been as far as, you know, employment? 
Hey, Greg, are you, uh, where all will you relocate to? Uh, uh, I guess that would really depend on, uh, you know, the various circumstances. Uh, I'm certainly not completely opposed to relocating. Um, Joyce, I actually have met with you before. Uh, I live in Pittsburgh, so I know you have your offices here, right here in Pittsburgh. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the positions that I was very, uh, hopeful about was a position at Highmark. Um, and recently, uh, I think I kind of bought that uh, opportunity uh, in the sense that um, I reached out to a person who I've been con- uh, put in yeah. contact with. Hey, Greg, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I have some great information for you. So when the show is over, or even when you hang up, Call the office um, and ask for me, and I'm going to get someone on the phone. Okay. Okay. Oh, great. Yeah. I, uh, I also, uh, you know, just, and I don't have to be on the line for this, but certainly uh, I would love to hear about what your guest is up to uh, nowadays. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, having such a prestigious degree from Harvard, and, uh, I'm curious to see what what what, what all. Um, you've been able to accomplish it then. It sounds fascinating and and, uh, it's very encouraging. Hmm. All right. Well, we are going to have him talk about that. And, Greg, thank you for calling in. Sure. All right. Thanks. Yeah, this is a big thing everyone deals with. It's really terrible. That's why, as a woman with epilepsy, that's why I made a decision. I would spend... You can see how frustrating it is for people with disabilities to gain employment Mm -hmm. And I maintain that part of that is due to pity. That's why I always say we need pity, not paychecks, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which leads me to my next question, which is the muscular dystrophy Jerry Lewis telethons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw that poster when I grow up. I want to be a fireman. So, Ben, what was that like working with the Jerry Lewis telethon? Uh. Forgive me, but I have to correct you. It wasn't when I grow up. It was if I grow up. <gasps> oh, and my God. That, that was, is even worse. Yeah, yeah, that was the kicker. That was the real pull your heartstrings. Uh, you pull oh. the poster. Oh, my. Cute. See, I'm giving them the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. That's even worse. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. At that stage, I was, I think, seven. Uh... At first, I was thrilled. They want me to be a poster child. I'm going to be a star. I'm going to be famous. Well, it didn't work out that way. But I finally was going to get a full-page magazine ad. Just me. No Santa Claus. No other kids. The stuff I'd done before. Just me. They made me stand in leg braces, which I, I, I had used for physical therapy. I hated them. I, I don't use them anymore, uh, but they were supposed to be good for me. And, and with their leg braces, uh, um, I could sort of balance. I could stand, but I wasn't really standing. I was kind of just balanced with these leg braces. And they told me the caption was going to be, if I grow up, I want to be a fireman. And at that point, my understanding was that my life expectancy was not that dire anymore. Maybe they were just kidding me because I was a kid. But in any case, my parents certainly felt it was a terrible thing 
to tell a child you're going to die soon. If, if you might not, you know, it was just, uh, it was a very bad message, which I didn't believe was true. Plus, I didn't want to be a fireman. I mean, that was ridiculous. I, I knew I couldn't climb ladders and jump into burning buildings. I, I wanted to be more like my heroes on TV. I wanted to be a, a, a you know, a policeman, a, a detective, I mean, or a, or a, or a, a superhero or something. Uh, uh, something I, 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 I could do. I knew I would have to have a, a sort of a, a desk job, a, an intellectual job, not a physical job like a fireman. So I could not convince them to change the caption. So in the photograph, you can't see it. It's kind of behind me in the shadows. I am crossing my fingers because I didn't like it. They were lying about me. And afterward, I told my parents, I don't want to do this anymore. And they said, okay. And that was my last ad for the telephone. Um, years later, you know, I found out that I wasn't the only one who felt a bit alienated by the images this charity used to raise money, uh, still uses, uh, and I joined protests. And I published essays about why they've got to change. And they were unreceptive at first. I mean, I got some nasty mail uh, about my protest activities. But, on the other hand, it has changed. I mean, Jerry Lewis is gone. The telethon is gone. And a lot of their uh, communications are better. They've got a long way to go still, I know. But uh, uh, I do think it's a lot less offensive than it used to be. But yeah, the problem is, yes, it, it encourages pity, um, not just from, you know, potential employers or potential spouses and everybody else, uh, educators and so forth, but also self-pity. You know, if that's, if that's the only image you see of disabled people in media, you know, these two pitiful kids who were, who were dying, uh, that's, that's not, uh, that's very discouraging. Um, and a lot of kids who were, have terrible diseases, of course, but um, in any case, we are not defined by a diagnosis. And that's the impression you get from the telephone in the old days. And that's all we were, you know, we're kind of stand-ins for suffering and illness and misery. Uh, we are not defined by our disabilities or by our diagnoses. I mean, they exist. I don't mean to minimize them, but it's just a, you know, one part of the story, one aspect of our lives. At least that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, I agree with you, and I feel that just, that is just terrible because then it spreads over to other parts of the media and to the yeah. country in general. So thank goodness that the disability rights group spoke up and did something about this. I do feel that has an impact uh, on people with disabilities. I feel that telethons do. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm glad that something 
was done about that. Mm-hmm. You know, we already talked about Harvard. I just want to say I bet you were really proud, though, to be the first wheelchair user to graduate from Harvard. Well, I don't know if I was actually the first. I may have been the first to, to do all four years. Mm-hmm. There was a, a young man before me who became disabled as an undergraduate. Um, he graduated before me. But what they did, of course, was whatever worked for him, they tried on me. I talked to him once. He, uh, he became a lawyer, actually, uh, in, 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 in Boston. Uh, you know, and uh, I said, Mark, how did you live in this kind of crummy dorm without roommates? And, uh, and he said, I didn't know any better. You know, in those days, I was grateful they didn't kick me out after my injury. Um, I hope it's better there now. I, I don't actually know. Um, but it was a big issue. It got featured in the school paper and so forth. That the deans had promised me uh, a dorm or a housing situation where I could have roommates, and then they took it back because they were afraid of the impact on the other students be living with me. You know, never mind my experience of being sort of uh, ostracized. Um, senior year, I rented an apartment off campus. I gave up on dorm life. I was much happier. Yeah, right. Well, you know, uh, la- just last week, just last week, my guest was Diane Coleman, from mm-hmm. Not Dead Yet. And here, lo and behold, I see an article that you wrote talking about your feelings in reference to assisted suicide. So mm-hmm. here's my question. Do you believe that people with significant disabilities face more encouragement than others on this issue? Yes. <laughs> In a word, yes. Uh, I know Diane is a sort of a hero of mine. She's so articulate on this complex, complex issue. But if you've lived with a disability and you've been in any kind of a medical setting, or maybe anywhere else for that matter, you know how people can just so often uh, discount, trivialize, Minimize your life, your your quality of life, and the assumption, you know, that you're well better off dead, uh, is pretty widespread, and sometimes the most shockingly within a medical establishment. Um, certainly happened to me. I mean, I was hospitalized uh, seven years ago uh, uh, with a very serious infection. And they tell me I was, you know, near death. And uh, fortunately, my wife was there, and we had discussed this. So when they asked her, is it worth worth saving? You know, should we do these things? She said, yes. Uh, uh, What's the term they use? Uh, Full code or something. Um, But you you take every... uh, uh, means possible 
to, to save his life. But, you know, they, they, I guess the reason I asked was because of my disability. They weren't really sure, you know. Uh, and I mean, it didn't mean any harm, but I, I, I do think there is a sense that, that, that people, particularly medical people, um, presume that we're not happy with our lives uh, and it would maybe not quite as worth saving as others. And uh, this gets even more complicated when you get into the finances of it. I mean, look, it's cheaper. It's cheaper to, to give somebody a prescription for poison than to treat them. Uh, I have them sustain a life, even if it's a, a life that requires constant medical attention. I mean, it, uh, we don't want to make it too easy, in my opinion, to solve the problem. It's a quote-unquote solved by... Uh, yeah, you, you know, the huh. one thing you said, I'm sorry for interrupting, the one Please. thing you said in your article, I, I'm not kidding you now, I've heard this to so many people... Um, that have significant disabilities, and that is, wow. I mean, it's amazing you're alive. Yeah. I mean, that whole thought, especially when it comes from the medical profession, is terrible. I, I mean, it really is. It has that, you know, the undertones of, you know, are you sure you want to be here? Now, the worst thing to me is, as people with disabilities get marginalized, not employed, as your colleague, the person Greg was talking about employment, unemployment, underemployment for people with disabilities is still very high, uh, it's depressing. And yes, you may say, you know, let me kill myself, let me make things easier for myself, everybody around me. That's what scares me. Sometimes mm-hmm. we have to be saved from ourselves, too. And I think a lot of people who say, oh, but I want this option, they don't realize the effect it could have on society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and B, they're reacting from, from fear, fear of what it may be like one day to have a disability. And I, I would rather we work first on you know, making things better for people with disabilities, making people be a part of society, feel welcome and valued as they are before we start talking about suicide as a solution. Yeah. I mean, it is. When Diane Coleman was on this show, I thought, wow, this is frightening. Some of the things that, you know, she talked about. Yes. Uh, And it almost reminds me, you know, of eugenics. You know what I mean? How oh, yes. in, in uh, uh, World War II, first to go, people with disabilities. I, yes. I mean, it, it just, it, it's just horrible. It really is. But I'm going to move from all that horrible to something very positive, and that mm-hmm. is your book, Miracle Boy Grows Up, How the Disability Rights Revolution Saved My Sanity. Um, and before I ask you questions about that, how would any of our listeners buy that book? Wherever books are sold, it's in hardcover, it's in ebook, you know, Kindle Nook, uh, iBooks, uh, and it's in Audible. You can download a, an actor reading my words. 
doesn't sound like me, though, but uh, he does a good job. Um, it's, yeah, it's on Amazon. It's in independent bookstores. They may have to order it for you, but uh, there are copies out there. Yes, there is, because I got one, so I know they're out there. Um, well, let's tell our listeners, how did the Disability Rights Revolution save your sanity, and what made you write this book, Ben? Well, um, at first I didn't want to. People would tell me, you should write a book about your life. And I thought, no. I mean, uh, again, I think you're making too much. I'm just a disabled person like any other. And I've just gotten by because what choice did I have? You know, do the best you can with what you got. And you live your life and go on and that's enough. But as I... I guess in my early 40s, I thought, you know, maybe looking back, maybe there's something to my story. I mean, uh, I've I've seen tremendous changes for people with disabilities. Yeah, medically, uh, technologically, and of course, disability rights. Um, And I thought that that story should be told. People don't realize. a, what it's like, and B, how much has changed. And I tried to kind of interweave with my own biography a bit of the history of the modern disability rights movement, uh, of which I gradually became aware. Uh, I kind of grew up with the movement. Didn't always know it, but I parallel with the movement. Um, so when I got to the age, really after, after college, uh, I graduated from Harvard with a bachelor's, uh, cum laude, you know, with, with honors, and I can't get a job. Nobody would hire me. Um, and I began to realize that I was a member of a minority that was discriminated against. I hadn't quite gotten through my stubborn head through school discrimination, but uh, in terms of employment and such, uh, I can really see the problem. I would occasionally get hired to write an article for a newspaper magazine as a freelancer, but nobody wanted me on staff. Um, This was before the ADA. Um, And again, with the uh, jury, there was telethon. I just met this community of people kind of thought like I did. I didn't even know we're out there. I got very involved in the activist movement, pushing the passage of the ADA, pushing to end the uh, Jerry Lewis Telethon, and other things. Um, and it was great. But uh, I guess I don't think of myself as an overly political person. I'd rather I'd rather write a and that's saying get published in an op-ed of the, you know, the, the newspaper than, than stand around and protest and get arrested. It just wasn't, wasn't my style. Um, and after a while, I, I had a few issues with some of the disability rights movement leaders. You know, I, well, basically, I wanted to get on with my life. I, 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 uh, I got married. Uh, I was talking about having children which we now have, two daughters, uh, and I just had other things going on for me. 
So that's why I made the title what I did. Disability Rights Revolution. And it was a revolution, not just a, a, move, a movement, but a real, a real total change uh, in the way disabilities, people with disabilities, are perceived. Um, it didn't, you know, it didn't uh, save my life, per se, but it certainly saved my, my sanity. It helped me figure out where I stood, and this is I was stood, not that I worried, where I was positioned, my status in society, and how to cope with the challenges that were making me very depressed, you know, like employment and access and things. Uh, it, it, it taught me how to cope with all these awkward situations. You know, from the waiter at the restaurant who asks your whoever's with you, what will he be ordering? Uh, to the potential employer, which is how are we going to cope with you in our office? Uh, all these things, um, disability rights movement, uh, discussed all these things and gave us uh, clues on how to, how to cope, as well as a sense of pride in the history of uh, people with disabilities, and uh, so that's why I, I say it saved my sanity, um, helped me to feel better about myself and know how to cope in the world. Well, I'll tell you what, you really had an impact on me with this book, and actually with your other writings, um, and, and I, I just think, by the way, you're an outstanding thinker and writer, and we are lucky to have you in our community. Well, thank you. Um, So, someone obviously impacted you um, to be as resilient as you are. Um, Who who would you consider your role model? Well, it's not just one. Uh, Okay, that's fine. How much much time do we have? (laughs) Um, Within the... uh, Disability rights. I mean, I, uh, I certainly read about, and of course, finally met, became friends with uh, Professor Paul Longmore, um, who's no longer with us. Like, a lot of them are no longer with us. Uh, Doug Martin, who was instrumental uh, in the ADA, uh, Barbara Waxman, became very good friends, strong advocate. Uh, uh, Diane Piastro is also a writer and columnist who can just explain the disability cause in a way that I'd never understood before. Um, there are just many, many greats of the movement. Um, Diane Coleman among them uh, and her husband Steve Drake who explained this whole problem with a physician assisted suicide. Uh, so many folks have, well, we're not supposed to use the word inspirational, but they've inspired me to, to uh, you know, understand uh, better about about disability advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are writers outside disabilities who, who meant a lot to me, uh, maybe from other minority groups too. We just um, show the power of, of the word, 
to, to uh, on the one hand, to make you proud of your past and assert, you know, for your own, your own kind, but also to universalize the experience because whether it's disabled or, or uh, whatever other minority group, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, we're all human beings and a lot of these experiences I think can be universalized and understood by people outside the group as well. You have a lot of great people that had an impact on you. Well, I'm grateful for them. I really am. Well, I wanted to... uh, I know this one's going to be hard to answer. Everyone tells me this is hard to answer. Uh, But, obviously, as I've just said, you're an author... You write all these books. You graduated from Harvard, so you're already very accomplished. But what are you the proudest of? What, what would you say is your greatest accomplishment? Uh, surviving? Huh. Mm. You know, the great um, Harry McBride Johnson, another role model for me. Uh, I don't have a quote in front of me, but... She said something like, I'm in the, the first generation to survive to such decrepitude. Uh, you know, it's true. Someone like me, uh, I wouldn't be alive at this age in a, a previous generation. Um, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just proud of my, my family, my, my kids, my wife. Heck, my parents. I mean, uh, I wouldn't be here without them, you know, without their understanding and, and support. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I can't take all the credit. <laughs> well, you are, I can tell you would not. You're a very humble person, and I'm glad that we have you with us, Ben. Because if we didn't, you weren't able to enrich everything as much as you have. So, Ben, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? They should buy my book, of course. That's an important message. um, Well, I guess it's important to remember... Yeah, not to not to judge someone based on one or two characteristics. A diagnosis is not is not all we are, you know. And uh, uh, we have to try to remember the uh, humanity in all of us, you know, and and. Uh, uh, have empathy, understand the other person's point of view, not jump to conclusions. We all have prejudices of one kind or another. I don't mean just racial hatred. I mean, you know, we assume things about, about the people based on whatever, superficial, uh, incorrect assumptions. Um, and, uh, I think as long as we're aware of that and admit that, it should become easier, you know, to be open and inclusive and 
respectful of the, the great variety and diversity. Uh, gosh, it sounds like I'm giving a, a sermon or something. I am not waiting for president. <laughs> She's spouting my personal philosophy. Well, um, you know, I always say, love thy neighbor with no edits. So <laughs> I'm with you on that. All people, everywhere, everyone. Um, and I want to thank you again. First, before you go, Ben, I just want to, again, give a special plug. Miracle Boy Grows Up, How the Disability Rights Revolution Saved My Sanity by Ben Matlin. Make sure you go check that out at Amazon. A great book. And, Ben, also thank you for taking time to be with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. And all Well, it's uh, our pleasure to have you. Uh, Well, we're getting ready here to end the show, and you all know I end with a quote uh, that I feel is from someone that has impacted life or a quote that will impact the world. And you're not going to believe it, but I so much liked uh, something that you said, Ben, that you are the quote today. And that is... A diagnosis is not all we are, said Ben Matlin. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to everyone next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.